Welcome everyone to yet another episode of Divinity Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Navi Jaswal, and uh, we are live streaming on Unchained TV and Jane um, Unchained News Network. Um, uh, we discuss on Connecting the Dots, uh, all matters relating to public health, planetary health. And today we have a wonderful person, my dear friend, Glenn Merzer with us. Glenn, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Fine. Thank you, Nivi. It's good to be with you. Same here. And I can't wait to deep dive into this wonderful must-read book that you've just written and launched. Um, it's called Food is Climate. Um, I highly recommend um, our viewers, if you haven't checked it out already, you have to read the book. It is just amazing. And, and we'll get right into it, Glenn. Um, Tell us a little bit about your story. Why and when did you go vegetarian and, and from then vegan? How did that happen? I became a vegetarian at the age of 17. Um, there was a lot of heart disease on both sides of my family. Uh, on my father's side, uh, the men all seemed to die in their mid-50s. Um, and I didn't know either of my father's parents. They were dead before I was born. And on my mother's side, uh, my grandmother was dead before I was born, and my grandfather died when I was a few years old. So I never knew my grandparents, really. Um, and um, my mother had two brothers who died of heart attacks when I was a teenager. One was in his 40s, one was in his 50s. So it was pretty clear to me that if I ate the way these people were eating, I'd be middle-aged at 25. I didn't, I didn't want to be middle-aged at 25. Now, I, I've been asked before, and I can't quite remember where I learned that meat causes heart attacks. But, you know, uh, Ansel Keys established that science in the 40s. So it, it has been known for 70 to 80 years that uh, there's proof that meat causes heart attacks. So I think people generally knew it, and I heard it somewhere or maybe more than once and i remember being a fan of the comedian dick gregory and he was a vegetarian and he talked about that so it seemed like my best bet was to give up meat and um it didn't seem like it would be particularly difficult and it wasn't uh so i remember the first day of uh summer vacation after my junior year in high school i decided this is the day i'll start and I made myself an English muffin for breakfast. And uh, my old buddy Dave called me and I said, uh, congratulate me, Dave, I became a vegetarian. And he said, hey, that's great, since when? And I said, well, you know, since breakfast. And he laughed at me and I haven't had meat since. That's 48 years. So I'm still indebted to Dave for laughing at me. Uh, I think that helped. Uh, but uh, really I found it very easy to do. Unfortunately, I, I did not become a vegan at that time mm -hmm. because uh, I had an obese aunt and uncle. And when they heard that I was a vegetarian, they became very, very worried about my health. Wow. Now they were each a hundred pounds overweight, but they were worried about me. And uh, they said, where are you gonna get your protein? And I said, the first thing that popped into my head was from cheese. I was guessing there was protein in cheese, okay. and there is. Um, and so for the next, oh, about 19 years, 
I didn't eat any animal products except cheese. I thought, all right, I'll have some cheese for my protein. And then in my mid-30s, I started to feel some pains around my heart. And uh, I said, well, either I could go to a doctor or I could give up cheese. And I gave up cheese and I haven't felt any of those pains since. And that's 30 years now. Wow, that is quite a story. And, and you know, you have had the perseverance to actually sort of go through with this whole thing. And I bet there have been people trying to convince you to go back to eating meat and fish and dairy and eggs. Um, have you tried to convince others to go vegetarian and vegan? And how did that Well, that's what, that's what all my books are about. You know, and initially, uh, I didn't try to convince others because I, I was doing it for my own health. And I wasn't particularly interested in whether other people were vegetarians or vegans. Um, there is a, a moral side to this, which is that many of us object to the treatment of animals in animal agriculture. And I would say that, you know, it's a horror how we treat animals. But I, but I can't say honestly that that's why I did it. Honestly, I did it for my own health. And I would make a distinction that I found it emotionally upsetting when I was a teenager, when I thought about how we treated animals. <laughs> but there was a distinction in my mind between it's emotionally upsetting to me and my trying to make the case to other people that it's immoral. I just felt that everybody really knows who eats meat, that we have slaughterhouses. <laughs> and I felt if, 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 if they're okay with it, I don't think I could convince them. So it was upsetting to me and I didn't want to be part of it, but I didn't want to spend my life trying to convince other people that it's wrong. So I was just doing it for my own health and I did not try to convince other people to be vegetarian. Um, and then when I became a vegan, again, I did that initially for my own health. But when I was introduced to Howard Lyman, and, and we wrote the book, Mad Cowboy. Yep. And Howard was a fourth generation cattle rancher turned vegan and animal rights activist. Yep. And he helped teach me about what he had done to the land in order to become uh, a, a cattle rancher uh, and, um, and feedlot operator. And uh, when I learned what we were doing to the land, I started to feel we all need to go vegan, you know, and, and there's no time to lose. And I can't just be shy about it. Right. And, and so um, you've written the book uh, with Howard Lehman, Third Act Climax, um, Mad Cowboy. Uh, um, with Howard, I did two books, Mad Cowboy and No More Bull. And No More. Okay. Uh, and and then uh, and that predicted mad cow disease in a way. Yes. Yeah. Wow. We predicted in Mad Cowboy that mad cow disease would come to America, and when it did, uh, we wrote what I call our "I Told You So" book, which was mm -hmm. called "No More Bull." Yeah, no more bull. And and then own your health. Um, well, uh, you know there is another book that you've written there are many books that you've written oh my yeah. god so there's uh there's this one book that i wanted to show to our viewers um own your health which you um it's the latest in a trilogy 
uh, Glenn, which you've written with um, Chef AJ, who absolutely, you know, everyone knows in the plant-based from the vegan movement. And, and if, if you don't, you have to check her out. Um, this is, is a great book you've written. Um, obviously, we're going to talk, we're, we are talking about Food is Climate, um, which is a response to Al Gore, Bill Gates, Paul Hawken, and the conventional narrative on climate change. You've written so many books. So from going, uh, from, from being this person, or from, you know, going from this person who was just emotionally upset that things were happening and animals were being slaughtered, you've gone on to writing books, which is in, in my in my books, you know, no, no pun intended, the, the, the most powerful way that you could be bringing your ideas and suggestions and your conviction, you know, forward for people and trying to convince them. So, so now you're more than just emotionally upset, you know, yeah. you have this deep belief. Well, there's a climate emergency now. And uh, my analysis is that there's no way to solve this climate emergency without a global transformation to the vegan diet. And so now it's a, it's a cause and we all have to join in and, and there's no time now to be shy about being a vegan or the need for other people to be vegan. Right, exactly. Um, before we, we go there, I, I was told initially when we were chatting that you have done stand-up comic yes. in San Francisco. And, and you've been a playwright, and, and now, of course, you're an author. You performed at Broadway and Kennedy Center and you know, wrote for network television. Um, was there any connection between those careers in entertainment and, and the work that you're doing today? Okay, just to correct the record there, I never performed on Broadway, or I never had a play on Broadway. I did have a couple of plays off Broadway. Okay. I performed at the Kennedy Center in one of my plays. Okay, thank you. Um, so the question is, is there a connection between that and the work I'm doing now? Yep. Well, in that I learned lessons as a stand-up comic and as a, um, as a playwright, about how to um, capture the audience's attention. And, and uh, you know, as I write books, I have to ask myself all the time, is this interesting to the audience? Is, will the audience want to keep reading? Just like as a playwright, you want the audience to stay in the theater and not walk out, you know? Um, you, and when you're a stand-up comic, you want the audience laughing. Yeah. So um, I, I have my audience in mind all the time as I write. Right, and um, there there have been you know other uh, instances as well that you've mentioned you know in, in other interviews and in our conversation before that impacted you know, your um, journey as an author and. Um, you know, and, and there's some stories, and and I wonder if you could share the story of how your parents saved each other's lives with yeah. our viewers. I, I thought that was a formative story. That, I tell that story in Own Your Health, and uh, what, one note about Own Your Health: I tried in Own Your Health to to write the funniest book ever written on nutrition. Now, when I say that, I don't feel that I'm bragging because it's a very low bar. I mean, you take, there are some great books on nutrition like The China Study by T. Colin Campbell, 
Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease by Caldwell Esselstyn. These are great books. They're not remotely funny. So, you know, there aren't too many funny nutrition books, but I try to, to write one. Um, so in Own Your Health, I tell this story of how my parents saved each other's lives. My mother saved my father's life when they were each in their 60s. Uh, and uh, my mother said to my father that she needed to go to the dermatologist for some varicose veins on her leg. My father couldn't stand going to the doctor, but he drove her to the dermatologist. My father sat in the waiting room and uh, my mother went in to see the doctor. The doctor said, what seems to be the problem, Dorothy? And she said, the problem is my husband. He's in the waiting room. Go get him, please. So the doctor went out into the waiting room, said, Irving, please come in here, brought him in. As soon as my father entered the office, my mother blocked the door and said, look at that thing on his cheek. Look at that. He refuses to go to the doctor. And the doctor looked at this dark, irregularly shaped mole and said, we're going to have to biopsy that. And he biopsied it and it was melanoma. It would, it would have killed him, but they got it early enough. He was left with just a small scar on his face. Um, and uh, he lived for another 25 years. Um, so that was how my mother saved my father's life. The way my father saved my mother's life was not, uh, was not very woke. It was not very politically correct, but it's the true story. So uh, what happened was a few years later, they moved to Florida. Um, my uh, mother had had heart disease since her fifties. Um, and um, uh, when they moved to Florida, my mother got a cardiologist who was actually the son of her childhood friend. So she went to see this cardiologist and he said that she had a very bad 90% blockage of her carotid artery. She needed an immediate angioplasty. He could schedule it, you know, for two days later. And my father said, don't do it. He's just trying to make money. He'll kill you. Don't do it. If you do it, I'll divorce you. So the doctor naturally got furious and said, he's not a doctor. Who are you going to listen to, him or me? And my mother said, she was in a tough position. She said, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to get divorced. We just got new furniture. And uh, so she declined having the immediate angioplasty. And my father said, talk to Glenn about what to eat. And I got my mother, I can't say I got her to be a vegan, but she, she uh, pretty much gave up all kinds of meat, maybe occasionally had a little bit of fish. And she ate more fruits and vegetables. And she was on a more low fat diet. And she lived to a few months shy of 99. Wow. So she lived another 30 years without that and with no cardiac events during that time, no strokes, no uh, heart attacks. So did she really need that immediate emergency uh, uh, angioplasty? Clearly not. Now, the doctor was, was, was not out of line in the sense that he was practicing the standard of care. Almost any other cardiologist in his position would have said the same thing. Um, but it just shows you that even when there's 
seemingly good reason to get an emergency angioplasty, you're still better off going on a low-fat, plant-based diet. And, and what cardiologists do wrong is they don't even bring up that alternative, most of them. That should be the first thing they talk to patients about. Go on a low-fat, plant-based diet, and if that doesn't work, we got this angioplasty thing we can do. But of course, if they did that, their, their incomes would go down. Right. Yeah. Follow the money. Right. Um, and unfortunately, our healthcare system has been set up and uh, sometimes it's not even the healthcare provider. It's the insurance company and the powers that be behind them that seem to be holding the, the strings, um, you know, to, to their practice. Um, I, I do know that American College of Lifestyle Medicine and, and a lot of other organizations that endorse and support a whole food plant-based um, approach to nutrition, um, in addition to some other levers that you can pull, you know, stay fit and move about substance, um, that do not abuse substances uh, like tobacco cessation and, you know, the focus on those programs as well. Um, that they're working very hard to ensure that nutrition gets in, included into the toolkit and, and the circle of yeah. care um, that is offered to patients and that patients should have an option to be able to choose a nutritional protocol over a pharmacological or a surgical protocol. So, you know, courtesy, a lot of, uh, you know, pioneers and, and uh, uh, you know, people that have done work in this field, um, including, you know, yourselves, I think that enlightenment seems to be dawning upon us. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about a particular individual, you know, with whom you've partnered, collaborated, written books, uh, Chef AJ, who is a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, tell us, Glenn, what role did Chef AJ play in your book writing career? She played a significant role because um, when I wrote Mad Cowboy, I thought of myself primarily as a playwright and screenwriter. And um, I thought, well, all right, I'll do this once. I'll write a book. It was a lot of research. Um, and it, at the time I wrote it, uh, uh, most of that research I was doing by reading books and even going um, to the... Um, Smithsonian uh, Library in Washington, D.C., uh, because there wasn't so much research that I could do online at that point. Um, and so there was just a ton of research and writing to write that book, as well as interviewing Howard. And I thought, okay, one book and I'm done. Uh, and then Simon and Schuster uh, offered us in advance to write a follow-up book. And I thought, okay, two books and I'm done. So after I, we did Mad Cowboy and No More Bull, I thought, okay, I'll have two nonfiction books. Uh, and then AJ had written a draft of her book, Unprocessed. Um, and so she had written the first manuscript. Uh, and she asked me if I could help her revise and improve it. And I said, sure, I'll, uh, I'll look at it and uh, I'll uh, give you notes. I said, I don't have time to do it myself, but I'll give you notes. And uh, she said, what, what do I want for that work? And I said, give me a dozen blueberry muffins. And she gave me a dozen blueberry muffins. And then um, uh, I, I did it. I gave her a lot of notes. And then she said, this is too many notes. I can't take all these notes. Uh, my career isn't as a writer. I, please, will you rewrite it for me? 
So I had to think about how many blueberry muffins I would want to rewrite the whole book. Um, and, uh, but I, I rewrote it and, uh, and we made a deal and we published Unprocessed. And at that time, frankly, Chef AJ was about 40 or 50 pounds overweight. And she uh, had the occasional cooking class. And I thought, you know, she'll sell the book at her cooking class and she'll sell 10 or 20 copies a month. And uh, I'm doing a lot of work here, but all right, she's a friend. Um, but what happened was shortly after we finished the book, she changed her diet. Um, and um, she has a video about this on her Chef AJ YouTube site. Uh, what she did was she needed to eliminate nuts and seeds and certain other, maybe avocados, certain other fatty foods. And these are perfectly healthy foods, but if you're overweight and you're having trouble losing weight, nuts don't help. Um, so um, she lost that 40 or 50 pounds and she became the slender woman we see today on, on YouTube. And then she became a, a sort of a weight loss coach and expert and uh, started the YouTube channel and got bigger and bigger and bigger and more prominent in the plant-based movement. So I was very lucky that I had uh, collaborated with her on Unprocessed. And this year we're going to um, have published our 10-year uh, anniversary uh, edition of Unprocessed. Wow. AJ is adding 30 new recipes and uh, it'll be coming out uh, in the early in the spring. Um, so um, she got me back into book writing. And then after that, um, she did a draft of her book, The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss. And again, she came to me to help her revise it. And so we did that one. And um, I started to realize that this, this is something I like to do and to spread the message. And, and uh, it kind of keeps me young to keep, keep feeling I can write more books. Yes, and, and it's such a wonderful story because it sounds like both of you had a really significant role to play in each other's lives, you know. Um, she uh, sort of inspired you to continue on with your book writing career and uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, your influence around her, you know, diet has, uh, you know, gotten her to a very healthier place, healthy place. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so, but you know, here's the thing it's like, why do you think nutrition is considered a controversial field, right? Um, because she's coming at it from like a chef angle, you're coming at nutrition and climate, um, from a from an author perspective and a book writer who doesn't have, neither of you have a background necessarily either in medicine or, you know, you're not registered dietitians and so on. And it seems to always, you know, be some kind of a raging debate between animal-based and plant-based diets in terms of health outcomes. Why do you think that is? Well, um, as I argue in Own Your Health, we're made to think that, that nutrition is a controversial field and the media um, helps promote the idea that, gee, there are so many conflicting nutritional studies. What can we possibly believe? 
when the truth is that it's settled science and the controversy is mainly in the media and because there are uh, authors who are trying to uh, capitalize on people's bad habits and so they write books about how meat is healthy and so forth. But the truth is when you look at the science, all the science is on the same side and it's very much the same with climate change. You know, all the serious scientists uh, agree that we are heating up the planet with greenhouse gases, and there isn't a serious scientific debate. But you'll hear in the media, some people say it's a hoax and so forth. So when it comes to nutrition, we've known for 70, 80 years that meat causes heart attacks, that saturated fat and cholesterol cause heart attacks. We've We've seen how on the fatty Western diet, there's a terrible problem with obesity and there's a terrible problem with diabetes and there's a terrible problem with cancer. And, and uh, you mentioned before the plant-based doctors, a growing movement of plant-based doctors. These are doctors who, for the most part, were not taught about nutrition in medical school. Most doctors learn nothing about nutrition in medical school but they all independently came to the same conclusion that they had been trained incorrectly, that if they did their jobs the way they were being trained, they wouldn't be talking about nutrition, but they, they learned the same truth, which is that a low fat plant-based diet will protect your health in, in countless ways. You get you to your optimal weight, um, protect you from cancer, protect you from diabetes, uh, give you more energy, protect you from inflammation. In every way, the low-fat plant-based diet is the ideal human diet. And so wh when, when people think it's controversial, it's, it's been made to seem controversial by the media and by some authors who defend uh, you know the paleo diet and all of the caveman diet and whatever nonsense they come up with but you notice there isn't any movement of doctors in the country who suddenly realize that sausage and and hamburger and uh you know uh cheese are what they should encourage their patients to eat there's there's no such movement and so you would think that if there was any evidence that sausage and bacon and corned beef are good for you, that there would be a movement of doctors to say, gee, let's encourage this with our patients. But th that doesn't happen because all the evidence is on the same side. All the evidence is that there's greater longevity on the plant-based diet. There's healthier blood pressure levels on the plant with the plant-based diet. There's less inflammation. You know, every metric it has been proven to be best on the plant-based diet. And, and the, the best studies were by Caldwell Esselstyn. Yeah. Because when you look at all the other studies, what happens is you'll read a study of 5,000 vegetarians or vegans uh, versus 5,000 meat eaters. And it's what they call a self-reporting study. And in these self-reporting studies, people, it's what it sounds like, they report what they ate and they don't always remember accurately. And then they report their health conditions 
and the scientists review the data and try to come to conclusions. And in all those studies, the vegans outperform the vegetarians and the vegetarians outperform the meat eaters, but it's somewhat close um, because those vegans might be having vegan donuts and, uh, and uh, you know, soda pop. All those things are vegan. So just because you're on a vegan diet doesn't mean you're on a healthy diet. Esselstyn, on the other hand, who worked with patients with severe heart disease, he put them on not a, just a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet, he put them on an excellent diet. He put them on a low-fat, plant-based diet with no oil, yeah. no sugar. And so he took people who were really at death's door with severe heart disease, he got them to eat correctly, and they um, had tremendously positive health outcomes um, and are, you know, for 10, for 10, 15, 20 years would have no cardiac event, uh, events, whereas the few patients of Dr. Esselstyn who were not compliant with his diet, um, they had far more cardiac events and worse health outcomes. So that proves it. It's just, just positive. Yeah. And, and, and Glenn, that's a very powerful message, you know, um, that the confusion around nutrition is fabricated. And obviously the media is the vehicle for, you know, uh, persons with vested interest, um, industries with vested interest. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing that even the authors that choose to write about these high fat, low carb, you know, alternatives and, and, you know, seed the seeds of confusion um, at, with the public at large. Uh, it, it's uh, as as Dr. Campbell says, you know, follow the money, and a, a lot of other doctors, uh, you know, in the plant based movement have suggested that. And and obviously, the work, the clinical work done by Dr. Esselstyn um, proves uh, the point that um, you know, food is indeed uh, a key to healthy life. And and your book says that, and it goes. You know, one step further, it says food is climate. Um, how did you write, how did you come to write this book, Food is Climate? Well, I was learning more and more about the relationship between animal agriculture and, um, and global warming. And uh, I came across a paper by Dr. Silas Rao that argued that 87% of greenhouse gases can be attributed to animal agriculture. Now the UN had initially said that 18% uh, of greenhouse gases could be attributed to animal agriculture. They later caught flack with uh, certain animal agriculture interests. And so they, re they reduced that to 14 and a half percent. And uh, the World Watch Institute did a paper in which they attributed 51% of greenhouse gases to animal agriculture. So I had heard the numbers 18% and 14.5% and 51%, but now Silas Rao was saying 87%. So I got in touch with Silas and uh, went over his paper with him and asked him questions. And I believe he's right. Now it's, you know, it's, uh, Nobody could be exact about these numbers because there are all kinds of factors that are hard to quantify. Um, now, Silas, for example, in 
quantifying the number at at least 87% did not include animal respiration. There are 25 billion animals um, that are farmed animals that are breathing out carbon dioxide. He didn't include that. So that would raise it higher than 87%. Um, also, uh, at the, when we have these industrial fishing operations, they trawl the bottom of the ocean and that kicks up sediment that should be just left alone, but it kicks up sediment from the bottom of the ocean and that carbon goes into the ocean and reduces the carbon capture potential of the ocean. Can anybody quantify that? No. Does anyone know how much carbon is being kicked up from the bottom of the oceans? No. And when industrial fishing harms phytoplankton populations, we're reducing the sequestration um, potential of phytoplankton. Can anybody quantify that? I don't think so. So there are all kinds of ways in which this is a part of a, a uh, you know, a, a very complex, uh, almost uh, impossible to, to capture, uh, you know, um, web of, of life and, and, uh, and uh, forces that, that you can't really know exactly how much can be attributed to animal agriculture. But let me give you an example. When whales poop, that poop fertilizes the phytoplankton. They thrive when there are whales around. And um, the phytoplankton emit a chemical called dimethyl sulfide that rises in the atmosphere, bonds with water droplets, and forms clouds. The clouds cool the planet. So, you know, nobody with a harpoon ever thought about that before they killed a whale. But these are, these are um, interactions in the web of life that protect the planet. And so nobody is able to calculate how many less clouds we have because we've killed whales. But we have less clouds because we've killed whales. And, um, and so nobody can quantify exactly how much global warming uh, is caused with, with all these minute interactions. Right. And, and, you know, as you were talking about this, I was thinking about how really complex this entire, you know, system is and, and that uh, our species actually has ended up making it even more complex because we, um, you know, have, have created very tight and siloed systems around um, only, you know, these, this set of persons are, are um, you know, able to do authentic research on a certain topic and, and somebody else not. So if you're not part of this cohort or if this, if you're not an expert in this field, then it's almost as though if, if there is even something as commonsensical as what you're, you know, talking about, and we all know about how food is health and food is climate, um, that oftentimes uh, people who are not necessarily resident experts in that field, they're questioned. Um, and I'm uh, and I'm aware that Dr. Selish Rao has experienced this question, and I'm pretty sure so have you. So my, my next question to you is, is it appropriate for someone who is not a climatologist or a scientist to write a book on climate? 
And the answer is, I, I believe it is. Uh, if I'll, I'll note that Al Gore is not trained initially as a climatologist. He was a politician. And Bill Gates now has a best-selling book on climate. And um, I counter his ideas in my book, Food is Climate. But he, uh, he was a software guy. Um, so um, uh, Paul Hawken is an economist and a, uh, an entrepreneur, and, and he's a, a leading spokesman now on climate. So, you know, the climate affects all of us, and all of us have a right to, um, to research it and to uh, come to our own conclusions and to express our opinions. Uh, but I felt that everybody was missing the big picture here. And the big picture here is that we're in a climate emergency. And when you're in a climate emergency, um, then you've got to do everything you can to save life on the planet, uh, to save human life and animal life. Um, and so you look at the solutions that we've been told about for 30 years, and they all involve fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. We need to carpool. We need to use LED light bulbs. We need to insulate our homes. We need to, uh, you know, use less energy. We need to trans transition to solar and wind power, cleaner energy sources. And all those things are good, but we've been told about it for 30 years and 30 years later, we're burning more fossil fuels than we were 30 years ago. Yeah. So clearly it isn't working. And also it's, it's, I, I, you know, Bill Gates said we need to get to zero in his book. We need to get to zero burning of fossil fuels. Well, really is, is Bill Gates uh, proposing that we end the airline industry. I, I haven't heard him say that. I read his book. He didn't say end the airline industry. So how are we going to get to zero? Um, uh, all the 18-wheeler trucks on the on the road, they're 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 burning diesel. They're not burning. Uh, they're not electric vehicles. Yeah. And and by the way, even the production of electric vehicles currently requires the burning of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, but even in a fantasy, even if you fantasize that tomorrow we go to all clean energy, so we're all, it's all wind energy and solar energy and electric vehicles and electric trucks and I, I don't know, solar airplanes that are suddenly going to be invented overnight. You know, even if you fantasize that we somehow stop burning fossil fuels, we're still going to be warming the atmosphere. And the reason we're still going to be warming the atmosphere is if we're still eating meat and we're still going to have a billion plus cows belching methane, we're still going to have uh, methane and nitrous oxide from animal waste, we're still going to be uh, burning forest, um, we're still, uh, you know, animals are still going to be grazing and degrading the soil. Yeah. Um, and so all those all those things will, uh, will be causing more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and we won't get to what, what, what's called drawdown. Drawdown is when you start reducing the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So clearly it's not going to work to just focus on fossil fuels. But let's say we do what I propose in Food is Climate. Let's say we all do the easy thing. We stop eating meat. We could all do that tomorrow. It's easy. 
I stopped that first day when I was 17, first day of summer vacation, never looked back. It's the easiest thing in the world. You just stop eating things that are animals because that's not human food. And I don't, I don't even understand, frankly, Nivi, I don't understand why people think it's normal they eat cows. Does anybody look at a cow and get hungry? It's just preposterous. So let's stop doing this preposterous thing of eating dead animals, which all the science tells us is not in our interest. It's just preposterous. It makes That's no awesome. sense. Yeah, it, it causes inflammation. It's bad for our health. It causes heart attack. If we all stop doing this preposterous mistake, we stop making this preposterous mistake, we all stop eating animals, then all that land that's being used for grazing, that is um, 37% of the non-ice land surface of the earth, yeah. we can rewild. And half of it will go back to forests and the other half will be grassland and some mix of vegetation and grassland. And Silas Rao's paper that he did with a scientist named Atul Jain showed that if we rewild all that land, we're going to get back to pre-industrial age levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We will solve the, the crisis. But there's more we can do on top of that. If we stop eating fish, then we're going to have healthier oceans and phytoplankton populations, right. more clouds in the atmosphere. Yeah. And so all we have to do is this easy thing yeah. of stopping the foolishness of eating fish. Then we could still have airplanes. Absolutely. And, and, you know, fewer dead zones in, in the ocean. Yeah. I mean, oceans don't yeah. look like oceans anymore. We've actually treated right. them as, you right. know, uh, dumping grounds for right. a lot of man-made waste. Now, when I was going through, I, I read this book, you know, and, and I'm just floored with everything that you've uh, shared the foreword by Philip Wallen obviously makes for a very interesting, you know, read. He's, he's always been very outspoken about the cause, uh, you know, public health, planetary health, veganism. Um, so that's brilliant. Um, and, and knowing your background as a stand-up comic and, and, you know, somebody who is a storyteller at heart and, and that the way you do it is so funny. This is almost like a roast, you know? So I was, I was looking at this and I'm like, geez, uh, Glenn, you've got to turn this into a show, you know, almost, uh, and maybe have Dr. Rao with you and then some others and, and, uh, bring this book to life in, in the form of a, a, a roaster, maybe something like that. that. That's just my fantasy, you know, to, to entertain people, but at the same time, uh, bring this very critical message to the world that we're now not in a climate change situation or a climate crisis or anything like that. This is a climate emergency and, and we've got to act now. Now, when I was reading through this whole thing, I saw that in chapter two, there is a map of the world um, you know, that you share. And specifically from 10,000 years ago, I'm just pull it up on the screen here for our viewers. Um, you speak about the fertile crescent and, and you talk about how that has desertified and, um, and that we've done it, you know, brought upon ourselves with bad agricultural practices. Now share with our viewers a little bit around what is the fertile crescent and how is it related to um, you know, the crises that we're facing at this point? Well, uh, the Fertile Crescent, you can see on that map, the green area. Um, and it, 
it's an area in which many factors have combined to 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 stress it and and now they're they're fighting uh, desertification there but if you look around the fertile crescent you see desert everywhere and um, the Sahara um, uh, is an area that was forested 10,000 years ago. Now, think about that. We know that it was forested for millions and millions, tens of millions of years. And, and yet, in the last 10,000 years, the Sahara became a desert. Now, just objectively, when you just think about those numbers and you know nothing else, what are the chances that that had nothing to do with human beings? Tens of millions of years, it was a forest, and in the last 10,000 years, it became a desert. Um, what did human beings invent 10,000 years ago? Agriculture. What did they begin to do 10,000 years ago? Uh, animal husbandry. Yeah. Um, and so the, the Sahara, there may have been many factors in its creation. I know that climatologists point to something called a wobble in the Earth's axis, and that's over my head, frankly. Um, so I'll, I'll concede that there could be multiple factors, but I'm certain that chopping down trees and grazing goats and sheep were factors. Um, and what you find today in these deserts is that the people who managed to survive the harsh conditions of the desert and live in the Sahara and live in the Thar Desert in northern India, what is their number one occupation? And the answer is animal husbandry. Mm -hmm. They go around the desert with their camels and their goats and their sheep. And so they are continuing a tradition that has lasted thousands of years and that is responsible for the environment they've inherited. And so we need to stop this or else we'll soon be talking about the Amazonian desert and the California desert. And so, you know, why is the Amazon being chopped down now in the greatest crime on earth? And it's being chopped down now for hamburger. Nothing could be more foolish and more self-destructive. You know, it's just crazy to destroy a precious rainforest for hamburger. There are no forests on earth that have been destroyed for broccoli or zucchini or, or apples or pears. So we, you know, we need to stop destroying forests in order to eat animals. Yeah. Glenn, thank you so much for connecting those dots. You know, a lot of people do not necessarily understand that animal, uh, you know, agriculture, us, you know, as human beings, our species moving from, um, you know, nomadism to pastoralism and then settled agriculture ended up, you know, creating uh, what I think researchers at the University of Durham actually uh, counted and they created these periods of epidemiological transitions. And, and they say that the first period of human-induced epidemiological transition that happened on the planet was, uh, you know, 10,000 years ago when we actually became uh, pastoralists and, and started uh, performing agriculture, both animal and monocropping, and then so on. We started manipulating nature for our own selfish ends, and it continues. Now, in your book, you also talk about um, pasture maintenance fires, and yeah. I'm just going to pull that up 
as well. Yeah. This is um, a NASA image uh, that you've shared. And boy, you know, you've seen all of those those fires and, and frankly, very scary. But um, tell us, like, educate us. It, yes, um, these pasture maintenance fires, this is a NASA satellite image of pasture maintenance fires just in one on one day. Uh, I think it was one day about 10 or 15 years ago. So they're set all around the world on grazing land. And uh, the, the, the basic uh, maintenance that ranchers use is that they let their cows graze the land and anything that the cows don't eat, you know, any bushes and shrubs that start growing, they burn them. And uh, this has been going on for thousands of years, and I would argue was probably one of the sources of the deserts we see in the Middle East. Um, and um, again, nobody measures how much carbon goes into the atmosphere with pasture maintenance fires. When I told you that Silas Rao estimated 87% of, at least 87% of greenhouse gases from animal agriculture, even Silas couldn't factor in pasture maintenance fires because nobody measures this. Nobody knows how much carbon goes into the atmosphere from these fires. Um, so that's another reason why the numbers could be strikingly higher than 87%. Um, and so um, these fires are not, are, are considered by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, they are considered quote, part of the natural carbon cycle. Now, who made this part of the natural carbon cycle? This is something people are doing. Mm. Uh, just like it's not part of the natural carbon cycle when a billion plus cows are, are belching methane and are exhaling carbon dioxide. That's too many cows. And we have too many pigs and, and too many sheep and so forth. So, you know, it's not... Yes, there's a natural carbon cycle when you have animals breathing and you have trees engaging in photosynthesis. But when you chop down three trillion trees, as humans have, there used to be six trillion trees, now they're three trillion. And you increase the population of ruminants, then there's no natural carbon cycle anymore. There's a, a skewed carbon cycle. And the pasture maintenance fires are another part of the skewing of any natural carbon cycle. Yeah. So those maintenance fires, if you notice that the, a lot of that red is near the deserts. Mm -hmm. And so these are causes of deserts. And we have to stop this. And so... Um, you know, again, if we restore the grazing land to, we rewild the grazing land, we stop these fires, we're going to, we're going to stop all that carbon that goes into the atmosphere from the fires. We're going to help the soil and the soil retains twice as much carbon as the vegetation above it. And we, we can save the earth, but we have to stop animal agriculture.
Absolutely. And it, and it sounds like, um, you know, that even the fertile crescent, which used to be fertile at one point in time, well, it isn't fertile anymore. We know that, you know, that gave way to what you see, these bald patches, uh, you know, through the center of the earth. And we call them these major deserts. And, and with all the pasture maintenance fires, it sounds like we'll have some more deserts. We have more deserts in the making. And, um, and we haven't even solved this whole problem of you know, nutritional insecurity and world hunger. And if there is increasing desertification and with whatever's left, we just, you know, plow those things down to produce more meat. Um, that is, as you said, the the most irresponsible, you know, thing yeah. to do for our own species. And, and you know, I, I think, Glenn, the planet's going to survive. Um, it'll just spit us out as a species. <laughs> that's, 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 the, that's the risk and the fear. And so when, when we look to solve this problem of the, the climate emergency, um, if we fo focus on fossil fuels exclusively, then we're focusing on something that has some social good to it. There is social good to flying on airplanes. There's social good to cooking. There's social good to warming your homes. There's social good to manufacturing. Now, all those things can be improved and made more energy efficient and so forth, and maybe we can reduce our flying and we can carpool and so forth. But all, all those things have social good to it. Um, and so to focus on that, you're fighting against the need of human beings to warm themselves, to feed themselves, to transport themselves. And it's a very, very difficult fight. And, and it's, it's frankly delusional, I think, to think that people are going to stop doing those things anytime soon or do them in a way that doesn't, that's totally decarbonized. Yeah. Whereas... If we stop eating meat, there's no social good to meat. We're talking about, this is an industry animal agriculture that creates pandemics. We're experiencing one now because people eat animals. Um, creates pandemics, destroys forests, destroys biodiversity, destroys human health, uh, creates air pollution, creates water pollution. There's no social good to eating animals. It's entirely negative. Every effect of animal agriculture is detrimental to the earth and to humanity and to the animals. There's no social good whatsoever to animal agriculture. So let's focus on the thing where we get multiple benefits. If we stop animal agriculture, we get a world of benefits, our health, water quality, air quality, climate, the animal animal welfare. Whereas when we focus on fossil fuels, in a sense, we're fighting against our own interests here, which, you know, it's going to be more difficult to transport ourselves and, and, and more, you know, more difficult to heat our homes and so forth. And I'm not saying that to defend the fossil fuel industry. We need to, tra we need to transition to clean sources of energy. We need, you know, we, we shouldn't be manufacturing junk and, and, you know, and creating mountains of plastic and polluting the oceans with plastic and so forth. I'm not dismissing fossil fuels from the equation, but to, to focus on it exclusively 
when it is the smaller part of the problem, that's the mistake. Absolutely. We need to focus first on the major part of the problem, which is animal agriculture. Yeah. And meanwhile, yes, transition away from fossil fuels, especially coal. Right. And they certainly cap those, those uh, oil wells that are leaking methane, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, thank you because, you know, you've, you've um, obviously, you know, shared uh, what these gentlemen, um, you know, why these gentlemen, these three people, you know, who've uh, uh, written about climate change, um, written books on them and have become veritable experts, you know, why they're missing uh, the bigger point and and by focusing on uh, what definitely is something that we need to work about work on is is not the entire solution um, but then recently uh, I came upon this news I'm just going to share it on the screen as well where Bill Gates says that rich nations should shift entirely to synthetic beef um, your comments Glenn. <laughs> I think all nations, rich and poor, should shift entirely to no beef. Uh, I, I eat no beef and I'm fine. And I know many thriving vegans like yourself who eat no beef and we're fine. So why do we have to knock ourselves out trying to think of, um, uh, you know, synthetic beef and lab beef and whatever this is? You know, as, look, synthetic beef it will be better for the climate than, uh, than uh, eating cows and having cows graze on the land. So I'll give them that. But why not promote health? You know, and if we're talking about lab grown beef, which would be an energy intensive process, um, uh, if we're talking about that, then it's, it's essentially meat grown in a lab. Uh, and it's going to be just as unhealthy as real meat. So I can't endorse something that's unhealthy. Would it be better for the climate? Yeah, but it won't be better for your health. Um, and then, uh, then there are the, um, uh, the products like the Beyond Beef and the Impossible Burger. Now, this is much better for the climate, again, much better for the environment than eating real meat. So this is an improvement. And I'm sure that if you eat one or two of these burgers a year, you'll be fine. But they're not particularly healthy because they're made with coconut oil. So I'm, I'm not going to eat any of them and I'm not going to endorse them in my books. But, you know, you can make a very healthy plant-based burger using beans and grains and mushrooms. So why do we have to use have all these processed ingredients, coconut oil and soy protein isolate and all these things? Yes. You make a burger using beans and, and mushrooms and rice and, and lentils, and you can make a great burger. Plenty of recipes for that. Absolutely. And there are 65 whole food plant-based, minimally processed, low-fat recipes, Glenn, that you've offered a compilation of in your book. And I've been trying some recipes, you know, they're, they're towards the end of Glenn's book. They're called Healthy Climate Recipes. Obviously, Chef AJ's name right there leading, uh, you know, the brigade of these amazing uh, plant-based chefs. Uh, I made what was a two-ingredient um, pizza uh, crust. And 
I just, you know, I used brown rice flour in it as well a little bit. And so it looks browner than probably what it should, you know, if I had followed the recipe to the T. But I, I, you know, broke this up and now it, these are crackers. So so they're just so, so tasty. And, and I know that there are more recipes that people, more than just these 65 recipes that people can get a hold of. Tell us about that. Yes, um, uh, I'm offering a bonus offer. If for anyone who purchases either the, either the paperback or the Kindle or the um, or the audiobook of Food is Climate, just uh, put bonus in the subject line and send an email to foodisclimate at gmail.com. And I will personally send you a bonus file of, of 25 additional uh, low-fat plant-based recipes. That's in addition to the 65 that are already in the book. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you, um, you know, if you buy a copy of War and Peace, you know, Tolstoy doesn't send you any recipes. So, you know, this is really a good deal. Absolutely. This totally is. And, and right after we're done with our live stream, I am going to shoot out that email to you, uh, Glenn. Um, Glenn Merzer, author of Food is Climate. Um, guys, get your copy today if you haven't already. And, and this is uh, the most important book that you would read um, to understand and connect the dots between food, health, climate, animal rights and animal welfare and everything else that, uh, you know, ails our planet at this point in time. Glenn, thank you so much for being with us and for your time. And uh, until we catch up next time. Thank you, Nivi. It's great being with you. Same here. Thank you. Mm -hmm.